This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Almost one year ago, on November 8, 2018, the campfire broke out in Butte County, California. Cited as the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history and the most expensive natural disaster in the world in 2018, it was named after Camp Creek Road, its place of origin. The fire reached 100% containment only after 17 days, leaving behind 85 civilian fatalities, five firefighter deaths, almost 155,000 acres burned, and 18,804 structures destroyed, with most of the damage occurring within the first four hours. In honor and memory, today, I'm joined by three people working in the world of a landscape fire preparedness. Callie Jane DeAnda and Ben Hart of the Butte County Fire Safe Council, who are both in the studio with me, as well as Doug Kent, author of Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape, who joins us remotely. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Hi, Jennifer. It's a delight. So, Kelly Jane, let's start off with you. Tell us a little bit about your role at the Fire Safe Council this far along in your career. As the executive director of the Fire Council, I am primarily in the role of helping the board of directors in their uh, management and fiscal responsibilities, and then bringing on staff and coordinating volunteers. But moreover, it's about getting the funding out into the community and helping individuals in their backyards. What about you, Ben? Tell me a little bit about your uh, role at the Fire Safe Council and maybe a little bit about your history in, in your interest in this in this work. Sure. So I got started off um, doing my undergrad at Humboldt State University, got a botany degree there and kind of jump-started my plant side of things. And when I was in graduate school at Oregon State University, my project was heavily concerned with prescribed fire and restoration on the landscape. So that's where I got the fire bug. And when I moved to Butte County last fall, right before the fire, wow. I uh, found the Fire Safe Council and decided that would be a nice way to segue into uh, my new life here. Yeah. And what about you, Doug? Tell us a little bit about your 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 work in relation to fire safe landscaping and fire protection. Yes. Um I started my work in firescaping in 1992. I moved into Mill Valley in Marin County three or four months after the tunnel fire, the Oakland-Berkeley fire. And, you know, that was a doozy. That was 2,900 structures, 25 lives lost, all in 10 hours. And I was living in an environment that was just as, if not more, flammable. So I started working with uh, FireSafe Marin, writing gardening guides, um, running press relations and um, tabling events at fairs, and it just grew into a, a county gardening guide. And then after the Cedar Fire in 2003, it was turned into a statewide guide, and it came out in 2005. Mm. Really, that's where my education started was after 2005, because I got to tour all the major fires in California, and I really learned, uh, you know, really that's when the education started was 
interviewing the survivors, walking the, the charred remains of, of communities and, and lives lost. And, and so I'm, after 27 years, I've got a heck of a story to tell now, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's go right to you, Doug, to describe, and, and then we'll follow up with Callie, Jane, and Ben. Describe when we use that term, firescaping, what, what does that even, what does that mean? That's a, I think that's a good question. If I can back up, if, if I can give a little background here, you know, the state has been burning. The whole Western United States has been burning for thousands of years. And the local populations, 12, 13,000 years ago, actively employed fire. They use fire for a variety of reasons. And there was nobody to put them out. So fire would have been a constant companion in their everyday life. They employed it and lived with it. In the 1700s, we had the missionaries, and they employed a different land management, and they just simply avoided fire. And you can see this in their architecture, adobe siding, small windows, small overhangs. The landscape around the missions were all use, herbs, vegetables, tanning, livestock, and, and they had an impeccable record of success. Not one mission was ever lost to a wildfire. In the 1800s, we had the, the big gold rush, and... Everybody coming into the state at that time saw everything on our landscape as a commodity. It had value, and and that's when suppression started. So we actively beat back this natural force that had been in our state for thousands of years. And then again, that changed again in the 1950s, and California's great car culture began. And, and what this did, it allowed the people with means to move out of the city, out of the crime and the grime, and to go up into the hills and, and live that natural life. And, and so firescaping and the zone theory and all our current models came out of the 1961 Bel Air fire. 464 structures were lost in that fire, but it was rich people. It was people with means. It was movie stars that lost. And federal and state funding had roared into L.A. County at that time. And, and it was at that time that firescaping, that word was coined. Mm. The zone theory was developed and and the basis for all our plant lists that we now distribute throughout the state were all developed um, pretty much out of the L.A. Arboretum in the 1960s and early 1970s. And so those are the fire airs in California, as, as I see it. And we're still in this automobile air. And so hopefully we can evolve past that and create safe communities, communities that are an oasis that provide well-being for all its citizens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kelly Jane, let's move to you before we get into the specifics of, of how the concept for firescaping is structured. And if you could talk a little bit about your understanding of the history of the fire safe councils, their, their mission, their purpose, and some of maybe why you came to be personally interested and educated in this field, and then some of the kind of goals of the Fire Safe Council right at this point. Great. Um, picking up from this, the history that Doug was sharing, in the 1991 Oakland Hills fires, there was a recalibration, mm-hmm. uh, basically, with FEMA and at the time CDF said, hey, we, we got to do something differently. Why weren't the local citizens ready or prepared? And so the concept of fire safe councils was born from that. And each CDF unit had the responsibility to reach out to stakeholders and form this collective group that would then help educate residents on how to be prepared. So the Butte County Fire Safe Council formed in 1998 
or 21 years old. And in the year 2000, the National Fire Plan started to put funding in the pipeline for communities to begin to do projects. And so we, over the years, have had a number of projects, whether they're roadside evacuation, watershed restoration, um, assistance for elderly, low-income disabled, the no-cost chipper program. So just a wide diversity of ways that we can uh, mobilize the community to be prepared. Mm -hmm. So as a a young person, I was in Konkau school and saw a lot of fires after the year 2000. Konkau and Yankee Hill community here in Butte County had a number of horrendous fires with loss of life and loss of structures. And so it was sort sort of natural for me to see that level of devastation and loss. I really wanted to, um, my goal in life was to bring together helping people and helping the environment. So I have a master's in geography, and I was very fortunate to be brought on as the fire council's executive director and to be able to put those passions to work. Yeah, and you've been there for a lot of years now. When did you first start with the council? I'll be coming on 15 years. Wow, (laughs) okay. Talk about, I think you've mentioned some of them right now, the primary outreach of the Fire Safe Council to integrate your goals with what the community needs and with what they're naturally trying to do themselves as well. Are those the ones that you just mentioned, the watershed restoration, the chipping, the educational outreach in terms of like the zones that we're going to get into? Are those the primary areas that you're focusing on at this point? Yes. So it's definitely a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, And we often think about the home itself and this donut's flowing out from that. So the home and its construction, the landscape, the defensible space zone, out 100 feet beyond that, the wildlands, and then ultimately the forest health. Mm-hmm. And so we have staff, volunteers, and board members that are interacting in all of those phases of trying to improve our resilience to wildfire. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add to that from a, especially maybe a newcomer to this area's um, perspective? Yeah, well, it's just interesting because until you've experienced wildfire, the um, importance of preparing for it just never occurs to you. And growing up in far northern California, up in the Redwoods, we were recently hit with the Gasky Complex um, back in 2015, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that fire really put into perspective just how unprepared we were because all the things we do as a fire safe council here in Butte County, I love to joke with my coworkers, the perfect reference house is my family's place up in Gasky on the Smith River because it is completely fire unready. Yeah. And so being able to take lessons from that and then putting them forward to what, what we do here now in Butte County has been really beneficial. Yeah, yeah. So, Doug, let's let's move back to you and a little bit into this second edition of the book, Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape, which is uh, just coming out from Wilderness Press. You describe the basic concept of firescaping and you put it into the context of its, you know, general broad history. When you went to approach the putting together of this second edition of the book, describe what you were working with. Describe the idea of the zones and then we'll move on to the idea of of challenges and potential successes. Yeah, by all means. Now, I can describe the zone theory, and that's no problem anybody in that room can. 
But when, like Ben said, when you deal with a fire, you see all these other things. And it was all those other things that really motivated the second edition. Mm -hmm. So just let me cover the zone theory. Sure. So the zone theory from from the stuck structure to 30 feet out is zone one, and it's defensible space. Its primary job is to withstand intense heat and an onslaught of firebrands, so without igniting. And then it also has to care for the occupants. So it has high recreational value, nutritional value. Further out, 31 feet to 60 to 70 feet out, is zone two. Primary job with this zone is to stop a wildfire. So that's where the ground fire or the canopy fire is actively extinguished. And then further out, zone three is where you actively slow the fire. So you're thinning and removing the dead, dying, and diseased vegetation, all while trying to encourage biological diversity and ecological health. But really the reality is what we've all seen is in an emergency, in mass evacuations, and these fire tornadoes and fire storms is roads all of a sudden play a bigger role than just 30 feet of defensible space. And the actual condition of the structure in the Wolseley fire in, in Malibu, 60% of the homes that were lost um, burnt with no direct flame contact. And 40% of those had burned from the inside out. They just couldn't withstand that firebrand attack, that swarm of fire that had was pummeling their structures for a week. And so this book uh, really prioritizes those two things. Roads is chapter number one. Yeah. <laughs> Structures is chapter number two. And, and then we get into the landscape in the latter chapters. Right. But we make sure that people can flee and fight and that their house can stand and withstand those firebrands. Yeah. So. One of the things that's really interesting to me is, of course, like there is no perfect fire-resistant landscape. It. It just doesn't no. – it, that's just not – you can get better resistance and better resilience. But when you're in the face of a very big fire, it, you're, it's a gamble. You just don't know what's going to happen even with really good preparation. Um, but really good preparation, um, no matter how much space you have around you, uh, will, will help. It, it does. We saw it. We see it all around us here. And I think all areas that have been hit by fire in California and beyond see this same thing. Um, and a lot of it has to do, it feels like to me, with being aware, being as educated as you can on current theory, because with each one of these big fires in these different situations, we're, we're learning different things. We see different things happening, like structures that burn down without any immediate fire, or as we saw in Paradise, you know, with lack of preparation and houses right next to each other, they sometimes were causing the ignition, not the landscape, you know, not the trees, not the the gardens. And so I would guess that a lot of my audience is aware of a wonderful podcast that is being aired on North State Public Radio this fall and was first aired in early October and produced and managed by Matt Fiddler, who is the producer and editor of this program, called California Burning. And there's five episodes, and it goes into depth on a lot of these like more complex issues. I really wanted to talk about this from the perspective of a gardener, a gardener who loves my garden and who my audience are also people who love our gardens. And in, you know, the aftermath of the campfire, 
all I could think of was how to reach out to my gardeners and say, how can we help? Like, how can we get you back in the dirt with plants, making friends again? Because after a fire where you're seeing the entire landscape around you burn, all of a sudden your garden might seem scary and unmanageable and unhospitable in a way that is kind of anathema to anyone who is a natural plants person. So I think my goal with the the remaining part of our conversation as a group here is to to speak from the gardening perspective, not the house, not, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but but – in, and for the most part, I guess, what we're also talking about are people that have space for a garden. So we're talking about this wildland urban interface, this line, and what we can do to make sure we have healthy gardens that are full of life and not fire as little fire hazards as possible. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In honor of the one-year anniversary of the devastating campfire in my region of interior Northern California, we're speaking today with Kelly Jane DeAnda and Ben Hart of the Butte County Fire Safe Council, as well as with Doug Kent, author of Firescaping, which has a new edition out now from Wilderness Press. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more. Jennifer. Anyone who has lived through a large natural disaster knows how imprinted it is on your heart, your mind, your memory, your every sense. 2018's campfire is one of those imprints in my region and will be going forward. We all have stories from the first day and the subsequent 17 days and onward from there. Stories of heartbreaking loss, and likewise, heroic human helping hands, from the first moment to the last, to now even, as rebuilding and recalibrating goes on. Fire is a part of the life cycle, no matter where you live, really, but especially in the drier and western regions of the U.S., it's an important part of the cycle. An understanding we're learning more about all the time, especially in relation to historic and indigenous understanding of fire and its uses, and then in current and future models of how we address it, live with it, design towns and communities more effectively with fire in mind. If you haven't had a chance to listen in to the extensive new podcast, California Burning, I think you'll find it riveting, moving, and really informative. It's a special five-part radio series and podcast of North State Public Radio, produced by Matt Fiddler, Sarah Bohannon, and Greg McVicker. It's available now at mynspr.com, californiaburning.net, or wherever you get your podcasts. I really hope you'll check it out. Now, back to our conversation with Callie Jane DeAnda, Ben Hart, and Doug Kent on the ideas behind firescaping and the importance of gardeners in preparedness. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to our conversation with Callie Jane DeAnda and Ben Hart of the Butte County Fire Safe Council. 
as well as with Doug Kent, author of Firescaping, exploring how gardens and gardeners can be critical emissaries of good care practices for soil, habitat, community, and catastrophic event preparedness, like fire, flood, and more, no matter where you live. So the Fire Council has a program for free. We can come out and do a home assessment, and that includes the yard as well. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, we've been to a number of homes around the county, and one of the things that we find is that folks really want their defensible space clearance, but they don't want their yard touched, meaning the plants that they have put in there on purpose. And and rightly so, because that's this relationship we have. Once we've planted this plant, we, we love it and we've tended it for a long time. So we recently had a, um, a resident who was interested in getting some help, but had planted rosemary down this hillside, which is a great erosion control but is a fire wick right up to her structure. And she, you know, it's been there 20 years and she loves it. For us to really make any difference with the rest of the vegetation that's out from that zone, um, we can invest money out there, but it's not going to help her home survive. Really, she has to let go of her attachment of the rosemary mm-hmm. and she's not going to. So I think that part of attachment and somehow recognizing that the landscape we put with intention may need to be changed, and that's really hard to accept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the face of a fire and the aftermath of a fire, your attachments have a way of changing. It is this opportunity to say, what do I love more, my my neighborhood, my house, my life, or my rosemary? And having that be an opportunity to learn about different kinds of plants, different ways to plant, different ways to irrigate, and like these zones are working to then put those to best effect so that we can keep some of the plants we love and be safer, right? Right. And uh, to jump off what Callie Jane said, you know, the way that you plan out your garden can also be part of your fire-safe plan. Yeah. And so it's not just the plants that you plant, but it's also the way that you put in your walkways and things like that. Like you incorporate that into your first zones as part of your fire protection strategy. Yeah. So in terms of challenges, attachment I see is definitely one of them, especially with, you know, maybe older gardeners or, or someone who's been gardening in a space for 10, 20, 40 years those plants are friends and family members. So mm-hmm. uh, we have to kind of work with that. What would you add to this list, Doug? Well, I think, um, and I think Callie Jane and Ben might be able to agree with this, is is at the end of the day, plant lists themselves are, are unimportant. It's really the condition of the plant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. seen um, oleanders set ablaze and just put out um, help put out, you know, ex- uh, cause a house to go down oleanders, which are mm-hmm. one of the main plants that we plant for privacy in, in fire country. I've sat next to a burnout house with live juniper right next to it. And so plant lists after a while become a vague thing. And you start realizing that it's really the condition and the age of the plant that is paramount to the success of that landscape. And and if I can add anything, it's that we need more gardeners in fire country. We mm-hmm. need more people invested in the regeneration of their landscape and the, the health of it. And gardeners are inherently really good at that. Yeah. Reviving something or renewal is part of their backbone and their creed. So if you're not a gardener and if you just pay people to maintain your landscape, you, I don't think you understand the importance of your role in regeneration and renewal. 
And that's essential. We have to replace fire in our urbanized areas in California, and, and our energy does it. Yeah. You know, fire has so many benefits. Yeah. It nourishes, it cleans, it renews. And gardeners have done that historically around their lots until recently, until these, you know, last 70 years or so. Yeah. I think this is such a great point because when I think about the fire last year and I think about working out at my partner's house that morning with the, you know, the the cloud happening and the the sound of propane tanks exploding in paradise up above us and you know he had spent he has he spends all year getting ready like you know weed eating grass and removing ladder fuel and pruning up and removing dead and diseased foliage and branches from his property one of the things that just was astounding to me in his canyon was to see how the fire went through and that the some of the plants that you I have always been told were terrible fire dangers um, were fine. They did fine. They didn't. They did not. They were not the fire brands that you, you thought they were going to be. And I'm thinking here of um, eucalyptus. Did fine. They were. They were watered. They were. They had deep roots. Something about the way this fire moved, the way our humidity was that, I mean, so low at that time. The same thing with the gray pines. They did not like, you know, just light up immediately. So it was interesting to have some of those preconceptions removed from, from myself. Manzanitas that were well watered and well tended around a garden, they were fine. Um, the the fire just moved right through underneath them, and it went to drier, more congested areas. So, I I love this concept of thinking not about what the plant is specifically, but how it is cared for and the condition that it's in, because that certainly proved to be true from my experience um, at that fire. Uh, yeah, Kelly Jean. For a number of years, people have asked us for a plant list, right? And so. UC Cooperative Extension has some wonderful resources for gardeners. I'm sure most folks know of that. And they have always said what Doug just echoed is that it's really not the plant itself, but how watered it is and where it's placed and its condition. And it's just a really tough sell. People don't like that answer. They right. want to know, is a rose bush more flammable than, you know, a coffee berry bush versus a toy on bush? Right. And um, I think it's going to take a long time for us to change that paradigm of thinking. That being said, we also have a board member on the fire council who's part of the statewide garden club, and he's been touring around the state providing education on these type of topics. And so I'm really excited for that particular organization that's working with gardeners um, mm -hmm. around the state as they're starting on their journey to understand how their gardens impact their fire setting. And I'm sure they're going to be excited about Doug's book. Yeah. And is this ward Ward mm -hmm. Habriel. And so describe a little bit, if you can, summarize some of what he, what he found as a garden club member. So the California Garden Club Incorporated, CGCI, uh, has chapters all around the state, and they're part of the national garden club. So I think he's all over the West and even in Hawaii. Do you have any sense, like any summary of what his takeaway is is at this point? Um, Ward came to us two years ago. We had a, a, 
a summit meeting called um, landscape level planning. In that case, landscape is the term for large scale, right. not like, as we would use it in landscaping. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a misnomer that we got him to the meeting. And he immediately said, well, why isn't this information being shared with gardeners? Mm-hmm. And so from that, he he was really just recognizing there was a void, that that conversation wasn't happening in the garden club community at the time. Yeah. And so through a series of PowerPoints and talks and literature and going to many conventions and the state fair, he's really, I think, helped nourish that and foster that new cultural change. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, let me ask this, because one of the questions that people ask me all the time, and I'm sure you get all the time, and it comes back to this desire we have for a bulletproof list, like give me the list of plants that are fire resistant, um, just like we want one that's deer resistant and you know blight resistant. Have you seen a a qualitative difference in using a native plant versus a non-native plant palette in your experience. Let's start with you, Callie Jane. Well, we try to promote native plants constantly. So we hand out packets to individuals that has a native plant brochure in there. Mm -hmm. And we just partnered recently with the Native Plant Society's Wildfire Recovery Guide. Yep. Uh, I personally feel that the native plants are adapted to the fire environment and they are the preferential plant to put in the land. And so we have a native landscape at our office and it's a treasure to see the hummingbirds come, um, getting food out of the flowers. And I am sad when I see our foothill communities um, from an urban standpoint planting all non-native trees and landscaping that's really not contributing to the ecological integrity because over time it's really going to change the amount of food that there is in the habitat. So we have tried to really encourage that thought process, but ultimately um, supply and demand, it's easier to go to a store that has all non-native plants. Ben? Yeah, and so the other thing I was thinking about is that um, in terms of there can't be like a specific target list, if you plant this, you won't lose your home. That just doesn't exist. No, right. It's a plant. It has combustibility. You can't get around that. But think about general trends and patterns. So you think about something like conifer needles. Once, especially once they dry out, they're extremely flammable. So if you want to plant something that's got a higher resistance, maybe think about something like a deciduous tree, like a red bud or um, you know, a black oak or something like that, something where you can easily remove that litter at the end of the season. And during the actual active fire season, it's got a lot of inherent moisture to it and not as much resinous compounds and things like that that contributes to flammability. So mm-hmm. if you're the closer you get to your home, think about plants that are going to be increasingly resilient, both due to the way that you water them and you structure their garden paths, things like that, but also just the inherent flammability qualities of the plant. So further away from the home, you know, you experiment with things that have a higher flammability potential and closer to the home, things that have a lesser flammability potential. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just think about that as a general concept. Mm-hmm. Doug, would you have anything to add to that? Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe. Mess up? Right. So, <laughs> well, they, they may not agree with me. Um, I have seen a shift in California. I've been gardening for 40 years and I have seen less gardeners now than ever in my time. The adults, the young adults that we're producing have no knowledge of basic medicine, basic food plants, uh, just basic plants, stuff that would have been common knowledge 80 years ago. And so when I design a landscape or work in a landscape, I try to put in the plants that will most likely engage the occupants to pull them out of their house, to pull them off their screens, to get them into the garden, to get that health, to get that respiratory, the immunity, 
all the benefits of gardening. And so sometimes that's native plants. But, you know, I work in Southern California, one of the most diverse regions of the entire uh, U.S. And really, sometimes I've got to work with um, Asian plants or, or uh, African plants or plants that will these occupants will identify with, will excite about and get them outside, engaged in their landscape and being that force of renewal and uh, regeneration. And so my goal is really to get more gardeners and I'm going to do it by hook or by crook. And if I come down and say <laughs> only California natives, it's really a pious point of view and it's may not meet the individual needs of the clients. And I understand our reasons to plant natives, but I also understand our reasons that we need more gardeners in our communities. And so I'm, I'm working, trying to get more gardeners out in, into their landscapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kelly Jane, you have something to add? Uh, Doug, I wanted to share with you, we just bought a house in paradise two weeks ago. And it's very, fairly devoid of vegetation. It was built in 1977. And um, the structures immediately around it all survived the fire. But the thing that's been fascinating is to look at what plants have survived, knowing that it's roughly a 40-year-old property. So there's lilacs and there's quince and there's violets. Mm. And those Yum. are those are very old school garden yes. plants. Yeah. So I think, you know, speaking of what might be a cultural acceptance of plants from normal gardens, that's something that I identify from, you know, years and years of seeing old timers gardens yeah, yeah. those are old timer mm-hmm. garden plants yeah and it's just really neat to see that right well it's funny how i was just talking about the importance of you know planting natives as well but i didn't even think about it when i was first moving to my house up in forest ranch um back in october but one of the very first things i did and this speaks to what doug was just saying was i wanted my yogurt bar out in front of my house. So the first thing I did was I planted blackberries or uh, blueberries mm-hmm. and strawberries. Right. And so that right. way it would draw me outside. And while I'm picking my blueberries, I noticed myself kicking away some of the dead vegetation that was also around my house because I was already out there. So that's a really good point. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In honor of the one-year anniversary of the campfire in my region here of Northern California, we're speaking today with Callie Jane DeAnda and Ben Hart of the Butte County Fire Safe Council. We're also joined by Doug Kent, author of Firescaping, which is out with a new edition from Wilderness Press. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more. So thinking out loud this week, really, really big thank you to all of you who reached out to share your enthusiasm and support and congratulations about the announcement in this month's of You From Here, about the March 3rd, 2020 publication of my first book. It seems so long in getting here. The title of the book is The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants. As I shared in the Views letter, I'm deeply humbled and grateful to have been given the honor by Timber Press of writing this book, and I'll forever regard the year that I spent immersed in the research and writing about the work of these 75 women as one of the most grounding, expanding, and meaningful years of my working life to date. 
a year which made me more hopeful than I have been in a long time, and one that fired me up with even greater passion for the importance of plants people and the plant-human relationship. These women leading collaboratively and horizontally and from a sense of community strength are great models who reframe how we see leadership at all. And they've inspired me to be even more dedicated to making the world a better place, even in small ways, as some tiny effort to live up to their work and all that they bring to the plant world, all that they bring to the world in general as an interconnected, interdependent whole. You can stay up to date on all things about the book publication in celebration of Women's History Month and International Women's Day 2020. You can pre-order your signed copies and stay up to date on when and where I'll be speaking around the country in 2020 about the book at the new Books and Events tabs at CultivatingPlace.com. This is a long, long, long time dream come true, friends, and I couldn't be more thankful for you all being part of my community through it. Thank you for your support of this passion project and for your belief in the power of plants and plants people. Together, we really do make a difference. So garden on. Now back to our conversation with Callie Jane DeAnda, Ben Hart, and Doug Kent on the ideas behind firescaping. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to our conversation with Callie Jane DeAnda and Ben Hart of the Butte County Fire Safe Council. We're also joined by Doug Kent, author of Firescaping. As the four of us enter the final segment of our conversation, we discuss more specific strategies to approaching firescaping from the first five feet out from the house to the very edges of your property. So the first three to five things, if Callie Jane is looking at her landscape, by far the most important is the first five feet. So if I'm your designer, I'm going to pull all shade structures, all those elements, those flammable elements that are commonly found in a garden, at least five feet off the structure, no combustible mulches around the structure, and only the most fire-resistant plants, coral bells and, and plants like quince and azalea and rhododendrons within that first five feet. River rock would be my, ro- my mulch. And then when I moved out, I would look at how I would do, like Ben said, how am I laying out the paths? I really want to attract the firemen and the emergency responders, and I want to give them wide and stable paths to work on and rush around the property. So are my patios big? Is there, are the paths stable? And then further out, it's really this constant endeavor of removing the 3Ds, dead, dying, and diseased vegetation. And so the further out I go, it's more about maintenance and management rather than just flat-out selection. So those would be my biggest recommendations. Okay. Ben, what would you add? 
Yeah, I just like to see say that um, you know if you're going to go with all the problems of planting the space for yourself and cultivating your space, make sure it has survivability. So make sure it's well watered, well irrigated. If you can afford to put an actual irrigation system in, you can only do yourself benefit. But make sure that those plants aren't dead, dying, or diseased. And the, one of the best ways to do that is to keep them watered and happy. Yeah, yeah. I'm just really um, resonating with Doug about that first five feet. And we had started a campaign talking about that last summer. Mm -hmm. And that was what Ward Habriel took to the Garden Club was a PowerPoint presentation on the first five feet. Mm -hmm. And we've seen so many examples in the campfire where it did make a difference. And so with this little house that we have that's very bare, I can't wait to get rock around that first five feet. (laughs) Um, Yesterday I was out with the kids, just like you say, getting them to chop on a bush. Mm-hmm. And so they had their pruners and they were just chopping away. And I was picking up nails in the first five feet thinking, OK, we can get some shade cloth here soon and some rocks. So um, the other component with that, though, are the wood fences. And this house we bought does have a wood fence right up to the siding mm. and all around Paradise where people have rebuilt or their homes survived and they refenced. They put their wood fences right up to the siding. So that's just something that we all we all want privacy, um, but it's just a real bad wick. So – we look forward to figuring out if we're going to do a chain link fence stretch of, you know, five feet off the house or mm-hmm. how we'll mitigate that. Yeah, yeah. And if I could also uh, throw in one more thing, if there's one thing I'd absolutely love to see, especially new homeowners and landowners like myself do, is get the invasives out. That scotch broom has got to go. Mm-hmm. Highly flammable, loves disturbed spaces. Get it away from your house as soon as possible. That was one of the first things we did on our property. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that was interesting to me on the day of the fire last year was that there was there had been a lot of very carefully thought out regular maintenance to my partner's property, and you know the weed eating and the and the removing of ladder fuel things like this. But there are little tasks that we as gardeners get behind on, and those became really important that morning. And so I'm thinking here of, you know, it was November. It had been really dry. It had been really warm. We'd had wind. So leaves were starting to fall. They had started to accumulate up against the house. Um, We had you know, because we were hoping rains were coming, maybe we'd gotten behind a little bit on the water right around the house because we were hoping the rains were going to start taking over. Um, Some of our tools, some of our like garden stuff had accumulated on the porch around the house. So it was interesting to, um, and he and his family have lived in this canyon for ages. And so they had a very clear sense of clear everything you can around the house, rake all the leaves, you know, back as far away as you can from the house, from underneath the plants around the house. Get the sprinklers going all around the plants around the house. And the fire went straight through this property that the house survived. And the fire went straight up to that line where we had been able to rake away from the house. And that was very, very powerful to, to us to see that. Um, and he had a wood, he has a wood deck, but it would we, it got watered and it was clear of other fire things. And so, um, you know, some of it's luck, but that preparation didn't hurt. 
Well, it's really interesting to hear you say how, you know, later in the season, your your gardening equipment started accumulating close to yeah. the house. But one thing that a lot of gardeners have around is a leaf blower. Mm-hmm. And that leaf blower, especially if there's a fire looming or impending, can be one of your absolute best assets because that blower can get underneath your deck and blow all that litter accumulation out really quickly. And gutters, 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 gutters. Get the leaves out of your gutters. If you have time to get up on your roof and use that leaf blower to get the gutters cleared out, you can do yourself nothing but favors. Yeah. Use your leaf blower. Yeah. You've already got it. (laughs) Doug, did you have anything to add there? Oh, yes. Um, I just want to congratulate your partner on having this fire country ethic. Yeah. And I think we all need that. You know, if you live in beer, bear country, you know the protocol. You know, you have trash cans that have strong lids and you leave nothing out, no cat food or dog food. And and you make a mistake once and you pay for it. And fire country, living in fire country, it's just the same thing. We have to live with this ethic every day, day in and day out. And then at the peak of the season, perform these certain rituals, Mm -hmm. the raking, the watering, and it pays off. And somehow, Callie Jane, Ben and I really need to encourage this fire country ethic. And it's no different than bear country or coyote country or earthquake country. It's it's just how you live on that land. Right. So I really want to congratulate your partner. He seems like a neat guy. <laughs> he is. Um, <laughs> and I think that combining that ethic with that first five feet is really one of the things that I would stress to any gardener is yeah, we all get behind. Like we, you know, there is some scotch broom that's gotten out of control by the end of the season at the edges of the property, but you cannot do everything all the time. You cannot be on top of it. But if you can keep that ethic right up until we are out of fire season in that first five feet, that is a great place to start. You don't have to take on your whole garden list that didn't get done this year. If you can do it in that first five feet, that's great. That's a great start. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think we've already really established this, but I, I because I'm a gardener and this is my like thing in life, uh, I want to I want to go back around as a group to the idea that being fire safe does not mean we don't garden. It means we garden more consciously and more strategically and with even more passion, maybe. And I would like each of you to sort of maybe talk a little bit about why that's important to you, because you can have a concrete garden. You can. Um, but that doesn't mean you're fire safe. So um, maybe maybe speak to the importance of this. And let's start with you, Doug. I would love to speak to the importance of just gardening. I think it's a divine profession or a divine endeavor. Mm -hmm. You know, we're one of the few groups that can actually undo or mitigate pollution and damage to the environment. An architect will build and they can just reduce their impact, but they can never stop the resources or the pollution. They can just reduce it and we can actually undo it. But it's, it's far more than just the esoteric stuff. It has incredible personal health. We see gardeners have less asthma, allergies, better bone density, less depression, more feelings of well-being. Even higher memory comes from gardening. And I don't know if you know this, but if you split the whole U.S. population in half, gardeners and non-gardeners, gardeners live 14 years longer than non-gardeners. 90% wow. of the people living over 100 were gardeners. So it's really would love to see a gardening ethic. And as a consequence of your your energies in your garden, you'll be less flammable as a consequence. And it's we have so much. The garden has so much to provide from health and nutrition to medicine. 
And it's just a shame that we really don't have more people out just enjoying these benefits that Mother Nature gives us right outside our front door. So my job as a fire expert is to increase the number of gardeners. I feel that that's my sort of my mandate. So Kelly Jane. Um, as a kid, my mom was always planting flower beds, and she became a master gardener. And all of the years of my childhood, she had a garden. And I was always frustrated with her for planting flowers because I felt like they were a waste. They weren't making food. They weren't doing any particular thing. And it wasn't until a couple, couple of years ago when I was standing in the house looking out at one of the um, flower beds she had planted that's very drought-tolerant. Uh, butterflies were all over it. And I thought, you know, that's what she's been doing this whole time was feeding butterflies. That was what <laughs> she was doing. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to passing that down to my kids. And part of the challenge for us in the campfires that um, this flume system burned that provided water to my parents' property where we had lived with them cohabitated for over a decade And my mom had said a couple weeks ago that she's just wondering if they're supposed to be there any longer because she can't garden. There's Mm -hmm. not water for her to use. And it was just one of those sad things of her purpose there on that land is to be able to garden. If she can't do that, then why is she there? Mm -hmm. And I know that she'll find her way and she will find a way to keep gardening. Um, But that really is the, the ethic that Doug's speaking to. Yeah. And I would just encourage people to garden because having a garden connects you to your land. And once you get out into your land and start working on your garden, you start to really take ownership over that space. One thing that we talk about up in Forest Ranch is that as a landowner, you aren't just a property owner. You're also a land manager, and you are responsible for managing that land. And so as part of just being outside and connecting with your space, having that connection to it and wanting to um, be a custodian for it and care for it, it makes you want to keep pushing out your defensible space further and further and further. So the more that you're out on your property, the more you want to take care of it. So garden for safety. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I think as we as we grow older, as we go through the different phases of our life, we, we see gardens differently. You know, we see um, you, might, you might go through a phase where you want the yogurt bar and then you go through a phase where you just want flowers and, and bees and birds and bugs and um, whatever it might be. I think um, you know, something like 38% as of the last census that I, I saw, 38% of Americans identify as gardeners. And I think for me, a little bit sort of a sister uh, mandate to your mandate, Doug, is to keep reminding those people whose impulse to garden is so strong, like your mom's, Callie Jane, that it is not just a nice endeavor. It is a necessary endeavor, and it is not superfluous. It is an just a powerful, and as you say, Doug, a divine pursuit that needs to be, um, its importance, I think, is important to, to remind everybody who does it, remind them that it is important work. I'd love to start, like, end with plants themselves, Right, because they're what what we love when we go. Or they're part of what we love, and they're connected to the soil and the soil life and health and the air and the air health and the wildlife. If you had three plants that that you personally like to have in your garden and in your fire safe garden, I would love to have you tell us about them. Let's start with you, Doug. 
Oh, I knew it. I knew you were going to start with me. So, I, and I only have two. I was thinking of all the berries like Ben. But um, Coral Bells is just phenomenal. Hookra mm, yeah. um, is incredible. Uh, most of your ferns are magnificent and they're fire evolved. But really, the I love the food crops, the strawberries, the blackberries, um, thimbleberry like you get up there. Those would be, you know, having food right outside the door would be just it for me, the bee's knees. So those would be my three. And that's a really nice three because you got flowers, you have beautiful foliage in the ferns, and you have fruit to eat. So you are feeding yourself and the beauty and the wildlife. I like I like your threesome. What about you, Callie Jane? Um, I really would like the kids to pick. And so this summer we had one tomato plant for the three-year-old. And um, my daughter is very interested in sort of the, the, the squash and the corn. And um, my middle son, I'm not sure what he would be drawn to. But, you know, think cucumbers, um, things that they can eat as the result of this endeavor. Right. <laughs> um, so mine split up a little bit between the garden and the landscape, too. Um, one of my absolute favorite things about living up in the mountains is the air at night during the summer and the fall and just mm. smelling the trees breathing and being able to be part of that like in the early evening. So cedars are fire resistant and resilient in their own way. So I'd probably go for cedars on the one hand. But then also during the summer, my absolute favorite thing is growing the things that just taste better when they come off your land. And so I love growing tomatoes and I love growing basil, picking up some mozzarella cheese and a little drizzle of balsamic on top, and oh, sitting on the porch, smelling the pines, eating antipasta, it's delightful. <laughs> Those are great. I like your gardens. <laughs> I think if I if I was going to add, I would add the canopy layer to get those trees breathing back and forth with me. So an oak, and I love the understory red bud for me. And then I might go with the, the hookara as well because I love those, but... Then I'm not eating anything. I'll have to think about something to eat in my garden. But um, maybe I'll visit your gardens. Um, thank you so much for being guests on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. I'm so excited that you are going to be in our area at the end of November, Doug, for the Fire Safe Council. We'll have all the information about that on the cultivatingplace.com website, but absolutely please go to the Butte County Fire Safe Council's website, which is buttefiresafe.net. And you will find all of these resources from uh, plant ideas, gardening techniques, the services they offer, and more information on attending Doug's talk at the end of November. Okay. Thank you all for being with us today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. This has been great. Great. Almost one year ago today, on November 8, 2018, the campfire broke out in Butte County, California. In honor of the tragic anniversary, we spoke today with Callie Jane DeAnda and Ben Hart of the Butte County Fire Safe Council, as well as with Doug Kent, author of Firescaping, Protecting Your Home with a Fire-Resistant Landscape. 
All of these three believe in the importance of gardeners in fire country as critical emissaries of good care and good preparedness practices for the soil, for the habitat, for the community, and catastrophic event preparedness, no matter where you live. Join us again next week when we celebrate the beauty, flavor, and diversity of herbs and spices with creative gardener Sue Getz, whose book, A Taste for Herbs, helps us to prepare for winter and the holiday cooking ahead in partnership with our gardens. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over at cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to see a lot more graphic information and images from the new edition of Firescaping, as well as images of the new FireSafe Garden at the Butte County FireSafe Council headquarters in Paradise, California. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.